Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we talked about a 50-year period of North American history leading up to the War of 1812, in which the new nation of the United States, the isolated British colonies of Canada and the Maritimes, and the ever-betrayed indigenous nations all jockeyed for position between the Mississippi and the Atlantic. This time, we'll open up in the early days of the war as the United States attempts to draw the attention of Great Britain away from the Napoleonic Wars and toward their economic complaints. Let's begin. I'm here on HI101 with Colin Oliver. Hello. And we've been talking about, uh, well, mainly the lead up to the War of 1812. The war itself barely got started last time. Yeah. But a lot of that context, I think, is really important, especially for a war that outside of North America is is, is virtually forgotten for kind of understandable reasons. So this guy Napoleon, up to some, he was up to no, no good. Uh, <laughs> and even within North America is... Uh, barely remembered and what is remembered is is highly slanted yeah because everybody's perspective is a little different and not fully understood by everyone else mm-hmm. another factor that we didn't necessarily talk about that much but i think is important to all of this is that the year 1812 is is right kind of smack dab in the middle of some very formative years in terms of national identity both for canada and the united states and as such, it kind of incorporates very easily into sort of the the national myth, uh, the founding myth of both countries. Right. I, I I've heard from many Canadians that they're they're quite proud that we're the only we're the only country that's ever defeated the United States in a war. <laughs> You'll hear that one every once in a while, even though that's not strictly true. We'll, yeah. we'll kind of get to how everything shakes out at the end here. Well, even I said we completely unintentionally. Uh, well, I mean, that's, earlier. It's, it's fine. It's, it's, yeah, I'm not asking anyone to deny their nationality here, but it's, it's yeah, Canadians own it, even though there wasn't technically a Canada at that point in time. And, and uh, you know, there's, there's always that kind of almost, almost smug, self-satisfied uh, uh, attitude towards the whole affair that comes from Canadians. We, we do like showing up Americans once in a while. We just don't like admitting it to them because um, <laughs> we're far too nice for that. Am I right? <laughs> Anyways. And then, and then Americans, as, as you noted last time, will generally see it as a uh, American victory or, or occasionally we'll talk about it as a, as a, a draw. I think I, I teased this more than I meant to in the first half of it but you know to, to skip through the through the end I, I think a draw is a fairly simplified but but fair way to categorize the end of this war right um that's that's more or less where we're headed and and i think that just fuels the uh slanted perspectives of the of the war in the end but 
Yeah, yeah. No one's no one's really going to come up with any any massive victories. But I I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Uh, when last spoilers, geez. When, when last we talked about this, we were uh, talking about young reckless Sir Isaac Brock going off and taking Fort Mackinac, and uh, you know his commanding officer not necessarily being the most happy about it, but certainly seeing the value that it provided. Brock is an interesting figure, um, and and I think maybe more studied than he otherwise would have been in Canada, specifically for his role in the War of 1812. But a lot of times he's held up as kind of a Canadian hero. And I think that's a really unfair categorization. He was a he was a British hero. And I think what makes Brock most interesting to me is that there is a there's a war happening on the continent at this point in time against Napoleon where careers are being made, legends are being made in military service. And Brock is stuck in the colonies. Mm. And yet, while other officers are resenting their posts in these these backwaters as they see them, Brock is the type of military commander that is willing to lay it all out on the line, despite not necessarily expecting uh, a massive promotion out of it. Um, and, and I don't think that has anything to do with a specific love of Canada, which is generally how that kind of gets spun, right. in, uh, at least in, in popular culture in Canada. Um, I think that the most fair char- characterization of, of Brock is that he probably would have done the same no matter where he was posted. He didn't believe in doing the thing halfway. And... What's more, he had been speaking for ages before uh, before war actually broke out about the threat that was potentially coming from the United States. Ever since things started getting really sour between Britain and the United States in 1807, he'd been going, we should probably be careful. Like these, th- this is a, you know, you guys don't know the Americans like I do, basically. Uh, they're, they're an odd bunch. And I think they might actually try and fight us. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy because when you look at the troop numbers between the United States and and Britain, it makes no sense to fight the British. When you look at the navies that are involved, it makes no sense to fight the British. <laughs> and yet you have a significant faction uh, within the United States saying, no, we should probably fight them again. Like, I know we won the first time, but if we win the second time like the second war of independence, then we'll really have made it. <laughs> and that, and that was like a legitimate political position. And, and a lot of people saw that as a, as a legitimate uh, path towards sort of international recognition for the country. And Brock was going, this is a, this is a problem. We need to be ready. And he made sure that his troops were ready. And when he heard that war had been declared, he went, this isn't posturing. They'll come for us. After the, uh, after the taking of Fort Mackinac, Brock decided to keep it rolling. Why Why risk it? Why wait for orders? I mean, confirmed with his commander, but they're still waiting for confirmation from, from Britain proper. Right. Still, he's a soldier in a colonial detachment, and this is how colonial de- detachments are supposed to work. Uh, he's given the authority to conduct battle as he see fit, sees fit uh, until such time as he's ordered otherwise. Right. If you look at a, at a map of the, the Great Lakes region uh, and the points at which uh, uh, the United States and Canada meet, there's really only a couple of ways into Canada from the United States, really. The British had a number of ships on the Great Lakes, so they weren't worried about an amphibious assault. It was mainly 
land crossings that they were, well, it's river crossings mainly, but uh, they, they were worried about a land invasion, not a sea invasion. Now that they controlled uh, the upper Great Lakes, Brock turned his attention to Fort Detroit, positioned where the city of Detroit is now on the, uh, it's, it's right on the, the border with Canada. He believed that if he took both Mackinac and Detroit, not only would he have cut off uh, a number of major entryways into the into Canada by the United States, but he would also control access to the old Northwest, giving the Native Confederacy operating in that area, Tecumseh's Confederacy, greater freedom to conduct war on the United States. Right, because Fort Detroit was the main point of control for that area militarily. Right. Fort Detroit is a very good target. It looks very, very good right now. Does uh, does Fort Detroit know there's a war on? Fort Detroit does know that there's a war on. That being said, it is early days, and they're not necessarily at full fighting strength. They have a garrison there, but, you know. From the general looks of things, I think that the Americans were not expecting much resistance. Uh, we talked about... Jefferson's comment about the mere matter of marching uh, last time. There, there, there was this belief that they would basically cross the border and the British subjects who lived in uh, the Canadian colonies would go, finally, we've, we've been watching your Republican experiment with, with such admiration. <laughs> finally, you're here to allow us uh, to join you. Were and they not aware that there was this fairly large contingent of professional british troops i mean they were but also they had raised the mil- their their militias and the numbers there are staggering right. uh, we mentioned it last time they they raised 450,000 militiamen this stems from the Repo- uh, the 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 revolutionary tradition of of you know the minutemen and this idea that an armed populace is is going to be just as effective as a professional army because in a lot of cases it had proven to be uh, in the Revolutionary War. In in this case, they, they were maybe not quite uh, correct in that assessment. For one thing, the militiamen, militias are most effective when, uh, when defending rather than attacking. And these militias didn't really want to leave their home states. Keep in mind that the United States at this point in time is still fairly decentralized, and you're not so much a U.S. citizen as you are uh, a citizen of Kentucky or a citizen of Connecticut or you know what I mean like there, there's a very close state tie uh, right. to allegiance and a lot of militiamen just weren't interested in invading Canada they just didn't want to do it they'll mm. defend the the state to their death but why are we going into Canada again yeah are we at war with Britain this is a British colony that's not Britain and how does this stop the native raids on on my cousin again? Uh, it doesn't. Why aren't we fighting the natives? Right. This makes no sense to them. I mean, obviously, for the professional army, it makes plenty of sense. But the professional army is double the size of the British army, and again, they're they're really not expecting a lot of resistance from all of this. They're expecting the army to basically pull back into Lower Canada and defend there, which is the general strategy of uh, Provost, the the commander-in-chief. The reason for that is that Lower Canada is the stretch, it basically encompasses the stretch of border where Canada is on one side of the St. Lawrence River and the United States is on the other side. And that's where they're most concerned about an invasion. The population is much greater in Lower Canada. 
And if the United States was able to take the city of Montreal, they would be able to control access to the St. Lawrence. And controlling access to the St. Lawrence means access to the Great Lakes. And if access to the Great Lakes is cut off, then their ability to support all of Upper Canada is destroyed. So you can't lose Montreal. You can't lose Lower Canada. They're not expecting British troops to be in Upper Canada. They don't think that the populace wants them there. They don't think that the populace is going to prove to be any sort of problem. They don't think the populace um, will show any resistance whatsoever. They think that the populace will, will take them in as saviors. They're in for some surprises. Brock rallies all of his troops just across the river from Detroit. And at this point in time meets Tecumseh. Tecumseh is now very interested in joining forces with the British. He sees this as a great opportunity because the, the, the Americans have been impossible to work with. They have not listened to him. They have not treated with him. Uh, his uh, warriors have been scattered. He is at much lower strength than he used to be. This is a strictly a matter of survival at this point. There's a lot of association between the names Tecumseh and Brock. Uh, in reality, they really only met for a few days. However, Tecumseh agrees to help Brock with the siege of Detroit. So their forces make their way uh, across the river, and the British set a traditional siege against the fort. And one thing that I think a lot of people kind of miss with sieges is there's actually a lot of communication between the two sides during a siege. Um, they will pass messages constantly. Uh, no one really wants to set a, set a siege for months on end, and if they can just convince someone to open the, the gates, it's much, much easier. Tecumseh has about 400 troops under him but they get to the fort and he begins parading his troops out of the tree line and then back into the tree line and then go back to the spot where they exited the tree line and go out of the tree line again in this big ring and they continue parading out of the tree line making it look like there are many many more warriors than there actually are and brock sends messages to the commander at detroit saying hey uh, we made a deal with these guys, and I'd like to say that I can vouch for them, but I heard they're crazy, <laughs> and I can't stop them from massacring you, so maybe you should just surrender to me now, and I'll do what I can to guarantee your safety, uh, but you don't you don't want them busting your door down, because I have no idea what they're going to do. <laughs> this is all part of the plan. He has arranged this with Tecumseh. Tecumseh loves this. <laughs> The city falls in two days, the fort, I should say, uh, and the surrounding settlements. Brock is thrilled. He loves this. Uh, Tecumseh is given the command uh, or the, the rank of brigadier general in, uh, in the British army uh, as a result, and he's made commander in chief of all native allies. Um, so he's, he's treated right for his, his help in all of this. The general in, in charge of the Old Northwest, uh, General William Hull. I, I should stop calling it the Old, Old Northwest at this point. It's the uh, Ohio Territory. Um, it's all the same region, though. It's, it's It gets renamed so many times over the years. Right. Hull orders the evacuation of Fort Dearborn, which is essentially modern-day Chicago, um, preemptively, before uh, Brock can send troops, because he, they're so worried at that fort without support from uh, Detroit that they will be unable to defend against uh, the native confederacy. They, they go like, we should just, we should just abandon the whole place. Like we can't support it. The evacuation is actually ambushed though by some Potawatomi warriors. And 
the fort is burned to the ground. There's a massacre. It's it's quite terrible. Brock, meanwhile, having uh, uh, secured Detroit, which was his, his main objective, he wasn't actually planning to go on to Fort Dearborn, basically looks at a map and goes, there's only one other way that the Americans can make it into Upper Canada, which is the Niagara Valley. Uh, it's the the region, if you, if you look on the map, between uh, Lake Ontario and Lake Erie. Niagara Falls is right in there. It's beautiful wine country. You should visit sometime. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's actually quite lovely. Ooh, are we going to talk about Fort George? We are going to talk about Fort George. Sweet. Yeah, yeah. You've been, I take it. I have, yes. Uh, and to Fort Erie as well. I kind of prefer Fort Erie, but, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, all, all of these forts have now been restored as, as you know, national heritage sites today. And... Um, I'm sure that's happened on both sides of the border to some extent. But yeah, I, I remember going to these as a, as a kid all the time. Fire off cannon. Good. Oh, good stuff. So Brock relocates to the Niagara Valley. Uh, he's based out of yeah, Fort George. And he's right that that is where the invasion is coming. Uh, famously, October 13th, there's a battle of Queenston Heights, uh, what is now Queenston, Ontario. And it's a massive British victory. They turn back the uh, the American invasion. That being said, uh, Brock is killed in the action. It's very early on in the war, and it's it's very, very unfortunate for the British side. I, I think that there is very much a, a, a line before and after Brock's death in terms of British action in the War of 1812. And uh, once once Brock is killed, the, the sort of more cautious nature of uh, Provost kind of takes over, and, and this, this sort of really take-charge action, uh, you, you won't see it as much. Um, out of the British for for most of the war, at least. So, um, just a quick clarifying question: If Lower Canada was really the strategic value, why were there not more actions being taken against Montreal? I mean, there were a few attempts, but they would actually come later. The idea is that you take the open and vulnerable colony before you take the very well defended and well uh, protected colony. They were actually hoping to use uh, Upper Canada as a bargaining chip. And when British command decided we don't have enough troops to defend all of this, we are going to defend Lower Canada, uh, Upper Canada becomes the default. I see. Okay, that makes good sense. That, and they're hoping that the populace, being English-speaking, is going to be more receptive to American troops. Also fair. Yeah, there, there's there's a lot of good reasons for going there. It's, it's, a, it's a reasonable question, but, you know, it's it's ripe for the taking as far as the the... American military is concerned. Right. Yeah. Um, Brock's Brock's coat is in a museum in Ottawa. I've actually seen it before. Have you ever gone to the Canadian War Museum? In, I in have Ottawa? actually. Yeah, they have his they have his tunic from from the battle on display there, and there's a, there's a hole in it where he was shot, and it's the strangest thing. Yeah. It's it's a very very weird thing to see. It, it's it's very tastefully done. It's also extremely morbid. Like it's really creepy. Some dude died in that jacket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's a little strange when you, when you think about it. That being said, it is an important enough battle, or or he was an important enough man. I I, I maybe should say that. Um, yeah, he he his his coat has a place of honor in our in our National War Museum. So, yeah, highly regarded in in Canada. Very highly regarded. Part of the problem with the Battle of Queenston Heights was that, again, American American militiamen refused to actually cross into Canada. They just had no interest in, in invading. There's a strong anti-colonial 
uh, sentiment for very obvious reasons in in uh, the United States for much of its history, and it was a like a deeply held personal ideological value, not just a convenient or, or implemented when convenient sort of state level uh, value. Right. Uh, a lot of these men lived that, which I find really interesting. Brock's replacement, uh, a Colonel Henry Proctor, uh, continued to hold Detroit, but it became harder and harder. The the, the Americans really wanted it back. Uh, a General William Henry Harrison uh, kind of laid siege to it, but you know failed a number of times to to take it. Proctor and, and Tecumseh actually set siege to um, Fort Meigs. Um, but failed to take it in May and, and sort of you kind of go back and forth in that region with neither side being able to take the the objectives that they're hoping to get. Mm. It, it really kind of grinds to a, a standstill on a number of fronts. In 1813, though, um, or, or I should say in the same year, um, that Muskogee faction in, in uh, Alabama that we talked about briefly in the first part, the one that Tecumseh had gone to kind of proclaiming the this reason sort of, why he was not yeah, uh, the, the, in, this, uh, this native purity movement. Right. Um, this one group uh, had, had really taken to it and they, they renamed themselves the Red Sticks. They began an uprising in Alabama just amid all this chaos. And I mean, in a lot of ways, it's the same rationale as the Americans attacking the British. Take advantage of, uh, you know, your enemy being distracted with a much stronger enemy than you. Nip at their heels and hope that you can achieve their objectives. So another front opens up down there. The the, the Red Sticks ne- never really managed to claim any major victories, but it opens up a new front in the war and eats away at morale as much as anything else with uh, prolonged uh, ambushes and guerrilla tactics. In April of 1813, throughout late 1812 and early 1813, the Americans started a, a massive shipbuilding campaign on the on the lakes, and the balance in terms of just numerical superiority on Lake Ontario tips in the Americans' favor in in April, and they use the uh, sort of the the chaos of everything that's going on to attack York, and, and they end up burning the uh, legislative buildings of Upper Canada. It's a bit of a pyrrhic victory, though. They don't. They, they take a lot of losses in the battle. It's not terribly successful, other than kind of symbolically, and it manages to take a lot of people off. So, yeah, they, the Americans, were the first ones to do the whole capital building, uh, capital burning thing. I'll just toss right. that one right out there. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but the Americans continue kind of tooling around in the the Niagara Valley region, trying to uh, gain some victories, and finally they manage to. Uh, uh, take Fort Erie, which was a, a, a key uh, military holding. They also take Fort George. So those two forts are kind of the, the two main military strongholds in the, the Niagara Valley, preventing the Americans from crossing over. And with both of those taken, uh, it becomes a bit of a free-for-all in terms of, of uh, military action uh, within uh, Canada. It gets so bad that there are a number of uh, native bands that are considering or had been supporting the British up until this point that are so disheartened by these defeats that they're going, listen, we need to be practical about this. Maybe we need to switch sides now. And actually, the the, the Grand River, Haudenosaunee, come this close to, to defecting to the, uh, the United States before um, the... British managed to take a, a fairly major va- battle or a fairly major victory at uh, at the Battle of Stony Creek, 
um, which took place at Stony Creek, Ontario. <laughs> it's it's weird talking about all of this stuff because normally when you talk about history and, and major battles, at the, it's at these faraway places that don't don't seem entirely real. And then that one sounds particularly goofy to me because I like I grew up ten minutes from Stony Creek. Sure, sure. So the Battle of Stony Creek is just yeah sounds a little goofy. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird. Yeah. Well, we're we're actually coming up on a battle at Chatham, so. Um, <laughs> It's it's the middle of nowhere, everyone. Don't even worry about it. Um, yeah, so so the the British continue uh, kind of falling back, and then finally uh, in in September of eighteen thirteen, um, that that naval buildup that we were talking about on the on the lakes uh, hits a critical mass in Fort Erie or on on Lake Erie as well. And there's a there's a major naval engagement. Uh, it's known as the Battle of Lake Erie. And the United States Navy manages to defeat Royal Navy forces on the lake and take control of the lake. And with that, the British uh, leadership basically look at the whole thing and go, I think we're done in Upper Canada, at least. And and they start pulling back. They're, they're very, very worried about their situation. Provost orders the withdrawal from Detroit because without control of the of Lake Erie they don't have any access to Detroit and if they don't pull back they're basically dooming everyone manning the the fort right there. they're just gonna get hit on either side they're going to be besieged they have no supplies they're going to die a very very slow death might as well save the troops abandon the fort uh pull back and and draw their support their their defense back into the tactically much more important lower Canada Tecumseh's livid at this uh as far as he's concerned if they if they abandon detroit then the old northwest is gone ohio is gone he's never getting it back but they did it anyways didn't sound like they had much of a choice no but for the british this is the matter of moving the lines a couple hundred kilometers in a minor skirmish in a backwater colony that they don't care about because napoleon is there <laughs> right <laughs> for tecumseh that's his home yeah and and once again we see this mismatch of of stated war goals right tecumseh that that fort detroit is everything that is that is the war the old northwest is the war and his allies are failing him the British, again, while well, they're just trying to keep the Americans out of Canada, basically, and if they can, if they can do, do some damage and stop this war, so much the better. But their, their entire stated war goals are control of the Great Lakes, control of the St. Lawrence, and maintaining the integrity of Canada. That's it. They're concerned elsewhere. William Henry Harrison follows up the abandonment of Detroit with uh, an invasion uh, uh across the the Detroit uh, Windsor border um, obviously might as well press the uh, the advantage while you've got it mm-hmm. and Tecumseh fights the entire way as they as they retreat but uh, he's he's very upset about the entire thing he's really doing this all because he's the kind of person who believes in honoring a treaty and feels that if he breaks it because it's become convenient what makes him that much better than the people who have been doing it to him and that he's been railing against hmm. Proctor asked uh, Tecumseh to help him delay the American invasion. And he had promised quite a number of support troops uh, to help him out. And uh, actually, here's here's Chatham now. Tecumseh makes a stand in uh, 
fairly unnotable region of southern Ontario uh, that uh, was agreed on with Proctor and the British troops that he promised uh, never showed up. He had extremely limited support, but Tecumseh and his his troops uh, made a stand uh, regardless. And on October 15th, 1813, they were soundly defeated at the Battle of the Thames. Tecumseh was killed along with uh, his his war chief, uh, who was named Roundhead. He was a Wendat warrior, a Huron. And with the loss of his leadership, as well as the number of warriors lost at this battle, it effectively ended the Native Confederacy of the Old Northwest. Kind of a sad finish. It's absolutely tragic. It's, yeah. Yep. There's there's no two ways about that. Um, it was a just a bad look on Proctor. And they, they were they were very ill used by uh, some trusted allies, and that's that's not okay. Um, to add insult to injury, the man who was credited with killing Tecumseh, uh, a Colonel Richard Johnson, would rather would later uh, campaign for office as VP on the uh, on the platform that he was the one that had killed Tecumseh. Oh, jeez! It's really important to not smooth over the level of vitriol. The United States had towards various native bands at this point in time. Uh, they, they they truly saw themselves as the natural owners of this territory and indeed the majority of the continent and really saw very little value in the uh, land claims or political claims of various native bands. Right. Um, this was not a, a passive. No, no, it was quite active and, and uh, people being good at, you know, "Quote unquote killing Indians uh, was was grounds for election. You know uh, the, the 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 campaign was a it was a rhyme. Rumsey Dumpsey, Rumsey Dumpsey. Colonel Johnson killed Tecumseh. That's how they campaigned. I, I mean the the uh, remember we we talked about the the Battle of Tippecanoe. There, there's going to be people who hear that name and are thinking like I feel like I recognize that somewhere." That's because uh, William Henry Harrison would later run for presidency, uh, 1840. And by that time, Harrison had the nickname uh, Tippecanoe because of his victory over um, Tecumseh's uh, confederacy at at Prophetstown. And so the election slogan or the campaign slogan was Tippecanoe and Taylor too. And there was actually a song uh, based around that. And it's it's all about how good he was at, at killing natives Mm. it's it's really it's it's yeah it was as you said it was not a passive thing it wasn't just sort of a a mislike of them it was it was a uh it it was seen as a heroic thing to 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 go out uh uh, make war against these people um yeah and it's it's something else and it's i mean certainly not local to the united states canada's got oh heaps and heaps of its own baggage to deal with there but yeah the the the, the idea of, of running for for offices is something that definitely happened and it's definitely kind of gross despite the fact that you know moving from detroit into uh, upper canada was fairly successful you know you had the battle of the thames in, in general us troops couldn't make it much out of the niagara valley on the on the east side of uh, of uh, lake erie which they just kind of couldn't get a proper invasion force going. I mean, Harrison's force that that uh, won the Battle of the Thames, they were really basically chasing a retreat, right? It wasn't really so much of an invasion as it was a, 
a route. The action in Niagara Valley, I mean, it, it was so bad that they they basically fought the British to the stand, to a standstill. The British couldn't retake uh, Fort George and Fort Erie, but at the same time, the the Americans couldn't seem to work their way up anywhere past York. And eventually they sort of ran out of supplies, fighting will, all of the things you need to conduct a campaign. It seemed like they had such momentum. I, I mean, really, I, I'd say the only moments where they really had strong momentum uh, were you know, the Battle of the Thames and the, the Battle of Lake Erie. Gaining control of those grounds was really important to them. But anytime they ran against strong resistance, this is kind of what I was talking about in the first part. The amount of difference between an American militiaman and a British regular was so vast in terms of training, in terms of capability, in terms of unit cohesiveness, um, all of these things that are really important to warfare in that period of time, that numerical superiority basically vanished. They had so many more men, but they could not outfight these very, very well-trained regulars to the point that basically th this would uh, eventually um, lead to the United States placing more of a um, more of an emphasis on professional properly trained soldiers up until now there's this belief that oh, you know the militia will rise up and drive out the british just like we did in the revolutionary war which is you know kind of true kind of you know it's more complicated than that but th that's the belief um the the ability of the uh the british regular in, in this war kind of caused a, a change of priority on that front right eventually the americans uh, abandoned both Fort George and Fort Erie. Uh, they burn New Newark, which is Niagara on the Lake now, uh, to the ground uh, December 10th. And it's actually pretty pretty nasty because it's the middle of winter and there's a bunch of people end up freezing to death out in the snow. And it's it's pretty awful. The British retaliate and they end up burning Buffalo, New York in, uh, a couple of weeks later, December 30th. So there's a lot of there's a lot of tit for tat going on here. Um, not a ton of like military movement. You know, there's the there's the decisive defeat of Tecumseh, but as far as the British are concerned, they've they've lost a bit of an ally there. And as far as the Americans are concerned, while well, they were concerned with the British anyways, and as far as the native peoples of North America go, it was a tragic defeat that was an end of an era. Yeah. Again, this mismatch in the War of eighteen twelve, right? The Great Lakes become basically a, a naval race that no one's really winning uh they're they're locked in a in an escalation battle you know, of, of building rather than fighting but they essentially end up being a draw for the rest of the war late in 1813 the americans try a couple of uh uh times to take montreal uh both times do not work out well for them it's probably the best defended place in british north america outside of halifax which is much better defended, but you know Montreal still got a, a sizable uh, detachment uh, covering it. 1814, there's renewed action on the peninsula, uh, on the Niagara Peninsula, but again, not a lot happens really, and the British are starting to look, or sorry, the, the Americans are starting to edge out the British in the naval race a little bit on Forty or on Lake Erie, and then something big happens. Which is that in April of 1814, uh, the British finally defeat Napoleon, who abdicates. 
And the British High Command basically goes, all right, so what was that going on in North America again? (laughs) Because now they have no continental war to deal with. Right. And now they're going to take the Americans seriously. I think this is a good place to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to wrap this whole thing up. Sounds good. We're back on HI101 here with Colin Oliver. Hello. And uh, we've been talking our way through the actual military actions of the War of 1812, which ends up being a lot of sound and fury, actually, at the end of the day. I've mentioned once or twice, but I think it's worth restating here that the battles are not big. The battles that are happening here are are not large battles. There's, you know, the smaller ones are a couple of hundred people. Some of the larger ones end up ranging up to couple of thousand people it's not like what you're seeing on the continent right you're not having tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people marching you know keep in mind that just at the battle of waterloo just just the battle of waterloo in 1815 um when you count up the number of troops on each side you're looking like two hundred thousand people on the fields in one battle that's the kind of war that britain has been fighting in europe up until now. The Americans are throwing everything they have at the British detachment in Canada and generally fighting them to a draw, but it's one little detachment. They started out with 6,000. Right. The Americans have been ramping up uh, troop numbers, theoretically at least, but I mean, it sucked being in the American army at this point in time. The pay was really bad. The training was terrible. The officers were poor at commanding um they did not have a mature army what's more there was this sort of financial crisis that was going on uh, around this time that wouldn't get resolved until after the war basically what happened was the federal banks charter ran out the year before the war started and the democrats or the, the democratic republicans who we kind of briefly touched on liked deregulation and decentralization decided not to renew their charter and so a lot of the stuff, like a lot of the government and the military is being bankrolled by private citizens and private banks. Oh, boy. Yeah. Pay was not great. Meanwhile, the British army is a finely tuned machine that is very, very good at churning up battlefields. And they're going to come out now. They're going to come deal with this. So, like, right away? Pretty quickly. Yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit about a couple of other theaters that have been going on kind of uh, at the same time as all of this um, with maybe not as much uh, specifically happening. I mean, m- mainly the Great Lakes Theater is where the most most of the action has happened. But there is also a naval campaign. The British are working entirely out of Halifax. They have some ships out of Halifax. Uh, the it's It's considered kind of a a pittance by the actual full Royal Navy because they're tied up in, in Europe, but you know, they actually have a full ship of the line and, and a handful of frigates and, and a number of smaller supporting vessels. Um, the Americans can't field a single ship of the line. Uh, they have a number of frigates and smaller supporting vessels ship to ship. Generally American ships are better built than British ships because the British have been focused on numerical superiority. Mainly that's how you, keep blockades going um but yeah it, it's it's a fairly close to even match uh when when you kind of calculate everybody out 
For the duration of the war, the Royal Navy had been more concerned with sort of blockading American ports uh, to restrict trade and starve them economically uh, than they had necessarily with uh, ship-to-ship action. However, you remember that whole Little Belt affair where they beat that one British ship and really, really liked it? Oh, yeah. It leads to this cycle of what's known as naval duels, single ship to single ship action. Um, They would basically call out British ships one at a time and take them on ship to ship. (laughs) There were three uh, uh, American frigates that were uh, particularly good at ship to ship action. The uh, Constitution, who we've talked about previously, uh, the President and the United States. They were good enough that the British actually banned duels with these three specific ships, uh, unless it was uh, one of the best equipped ships, either their ship of the line or a couple of their top end frigates. Right. Um, And these three ships won a bunch of various duels until the Constitution was finally defeated by uh, uh, a British frigate, the HMS Shannon, uh, in Boston Harbor. Symbolic. Uh, June thir- uh, June 1st of 1813. And as soon as that happened, the U.S. also banned ship-to-ship uh, <laughs> duels. Um, and I had no idea this was even a thing. Why would the British agree to this? Well, because they just didn't care. Yeah. It was practice for these commanders. And there is a matter of honor on... I shouldn't say that they didn't care. There is a matter of honor on the British side. They are well known for having the world's best navy, and they did have one of their ships bested in one-on-one combat in the Little Belt Affair. Um, They maintained that it was unfair, and I would tend to agree with them on that, but um, the fact that it didn't matter to the United States was uh, a little bit enraging. Right. Um, And the United States wanted to keep up the whole beating ships one-on-one thing because it feels really good, even though it wasn't necessarily achieving much in the way of actual military goals. Right. Fair enough. Over the course of the war, uh, the United States was more successful in these duels than uh, Great Britain. Uh, they, they flat out won more of these. That being said, really their main effect was raising morale. That was about it. Uh, they didn't manage to actually break trade out of any of the ports. The British tended to just continue capturing merchant vessels over the course of the entire war. They captured uh, over 1,300 merchant vessels. <laughs> uh over the you know less than three years that this war was active yeah um so you know it was all good for them um the president was actually captured um sorry the, the ship the president. i was gonna say <laughs> I, I, I realized that that was unclear the uss president was captured after a battle with a uh a ship um the hms endymion um which was like a big it was a big deal that was one of their three star ships they were very upset about it But that blockade, let's talk about that for a second. Keep in mind that this war all started over economic concerns, right? The naval blockade that was put in place was so incredibly effective that the American, the the value of American exports over the course of the war dropped from $130 million in 1807, so at the very start of all of these blockades that would eventually lead to war, $130 million a year. In 1814, they were worth $7 million. Damn. That is not a lot of trade. Yeah. You know, there's inflation to take into account, et cetera, et cetera. But just look at the ratio. Um, they they basically ended British or uh, American trade in this era. Mm-hmm. It was very, very effective. And as the war goes on, more ships are freed up from the continent 
and put in place for these blockades and it becomes more and more complete. There's another economic concern that we should probably make note of. You'll remember, you'll remember that um, John Graves Simcoe ended uh, slavery in British North America. I don't want to give him too much credit. I mean, he did a good thing, but it was mainly to um, differentiate himself from the United States and to uh, potentially cause economic damage to the United States, whose economy was based on slavery. Um, to give escaped slaves a haven to escape to was uh, a strategic move on his part. During the war, because so many ships were being captured, a very, very popular way of escaping from a plantation was rather than sort of the underground railroad typical, you know, head for the northern states and then to Canada thing that we think of for uh, escapes, they would just get on a merchant boat and sail out. The British would capture it and they would go, oh, you got me. By the way, I'm a slave. Can you please take me to British North America? I know you guys don't have slavery. And they would go, sure, no problem. We'll take you there. Around 4,000 slaves escaped in this manner. It's wow. not a small number. No, I had no idea. Many ended up settling in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. There's actually a fairly um, strong tradition there. Over the course of the war, around 6,000 slaves total would uh, would escape the South. There were um, messages sent from Britain to specifically uh, slaves. I mean, they, they didn't... They didn't specifically address slaves, but they made it fairly clear who they were talking about, that uh, any um, defectors would find haven within British North America if they so desired. It isn't, this enraged the slave states. They hated it so much. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, it, they, they were already being hammered so badly, economically speaking, that to lose their you know, source of free labor was also incredibly damaging to them. I feel... So bad for them. Yeah, no, I know. It's I'm crying the river over here, um, but you know, it's it's one of those it's one of those tricky things to talk about. Yeah. That it's like, yeah, this is as much a, a an economic strategy as it is necessarily a moral standpoint by the British as well. Right, is, is kind of what I'm trying to, to draw yeah, attention to here. Fair enough. Um, Take a little of the, uh, uh, yeah, the romance out of yeah, it. I suppose. Uh, yeah. yeah, there's there's not. You know, there, there, there's not as much maybe moral integrity going into this uh, calculus as we might like to hope. Right. Um, that's that's projection right there, and that's something to be avoided. <laughs> that end of the Napoleonic War, aside from bringing a lot more ships in for the blockades, uh, ends up freeing up around 15,000 British regulars to be sent to British North America. Keep in mind that 6,000 have been holding the line against between twelve and 20,000 regular troops right. for a long time now. So now they've got them more or less matched if you ignore the militia numbers, which the British tended to do. And yeah, pound for pound, the, the British kind of have them outgunned on that one. The Americans had destroyed 40 areas. They retreated back into the U.S. Sorry, they had, I think I, I missed it. They had recaptured it a second time just before the Napoleonic Wars ended and oh. then retreated back in and destroyed it again. Gotcha. Uh, so, yeah, Fort Erie had a rough go of things. Yeah. August of 1814, so only four months after the war ends in Europe, the Royal Navy invades uh, Chesapeake Bay carrying amphibious troops. They decided to just go straight for the jugular. Let's not mess around. 
they went straight for Washington. Uh, August 24th, British troops uh, marched into Washington, uh, driving out uh, the fairly small detachment that was defending their nation's capital, as well as a, a great number of politicians, and ended up burning a number of government buildings to the ground, including the, the Capitol, the, the presidential ma- mansion, what's known as the White House now, um, the Congressional Library, a, a bunch of different things. Um, this is pure retaliation. Um, there's there's no two ways about it. This is a this is a signal that listen, this war is over. We're done fighting it. We don't want to do this anymore. Do you want to do this anymore? <laughs> we can do this, but we don't want to do this anymore. Right. There's actually a, a thunderstorm the next day that puts out a lot of these flames, um, and the British withdraw. There's this uh, sort of myth that goes around that the the thunderstorm drove out the british and that it saved the capital and and i i think that might be uh kind of romantic thinking because um they they all indications uh show that they weren't planning on sticking around long anyways the burning had been done they were pretty much finished with what they had uh come to do goals they, met they moved on to Bal- baltimore which was a much bigger city and much better defended and a much more strategic uh, uh location and set siege to the heavily fortified city. I, I can't do this podcast without pointing out that this is where Francis Scott Key witnessed the British launching uh, rockets off of the uh, the ships towards the city of Baltimore at night and was inspired to write the poem that would eventually become the Star Spangled Banner. You know, the hmm. rockets red glare, yeah. bombs bursting in the air. Yeah, that's, that's uh, based on the Battle of Baltimore. Hmm. Um, so yeah, that's a... It's one of those trivia things that gets thrown around very, very often. All right. I didn't know it. Yep. Um, the British are actually repulsed at, at Baltimore. They failed to take the city. But it, it, it did give us the United States National Anthem. So there you go. All right. The other front that they've decided to open up is, remember that uh, that rebellion being led by the Red Sticks down in Alabama? They've asked for British help. The British decide to help them. Uh, they take 8,000 troops down to New Orleans and... Uh, uh, attempt to support the the red sticks down there however new orleans is very very well fortified it is fortified from the old french days it is extremely formidable and uh the british actually failed to take new orleans as well it's interesting as as massive as the the troop uh deployment is after the napoleonic war the british don't actually see a lot of victory out of it now is this at all in part to you were talking about militias being better as a defensive force did that i think that's i think that's a big part of it yeah they they are more effective on the defense it's also that the targets that they choose are extremely well fortified right um if their only goal was to hold the niagara valley i think fifteen thousand troops probably would have done it but that wasn't the goals that they were setting both uh, New Orleans and Baltimore were extremely well fortified. And while it would have been strategically uh, devastating to have taken them, yeah, the fact that they didn't take them doesn't particularly surprise me personally. That being said, August of 1814, uh, so same month that all of this is going down, uh, the peace talks begin. The Americans have decided they may have won these battles, but that might not keep up for so long and sieges are a, a, a lot harder to win than battles well and i have to feel like well, england could probably commit a lot more if they really wanted to 
I, yeah, I, I don't think troop numbers are their problem anymore. Their their distraction is gone. They could focus as much uh, uh, attention as they like on North America now. Provost was given uh, the orders to basically, uh, okay, don't lose uh, uh, Lower Canada and take back the Great Lakes. And he didn't actually manage to take back the Great Lakes. He just kind of managed to hold on to Lower Canada. So even with these extra troops, and I mean, that's that's more a matter of command, in my opinion, than, than anything else. He was still playing a very defensive, very conservative campaign out, and, and he probably could have gone a little bit harder. But again, hindsight and all that. The Duke of Wellington was actually quite unhappy with how the campaign had gone in North America. And as uh, peace talks began, he basically cautioned uh, British politicians and diplomats, um, listen, we have not won this war. Don't go into these talks like you think you've won this war because you have not. You have failed to take any major American uh, strongholds. Washington wasn't considered major in this context. It was political. It wasn't a military yeah. outpost. They, Fair enough. They sent the message they were intending to send, but right. that's not necessarily a military victory. It's maybe a, a psychological victory, mm-hmm. but that's not what the Duke of Wellington was in, was was concerned with here. But you know, the few the few major victories that they managed to achieve, uh, specifically Detroit, I'm thinking of, uh, they failed to keep. The Royal Navy failed to maintain dominance in the Great Lakes, which, you know, there's there's not many things that the Royal Navy would take harder than failing to ma- uh, maintain naval dominance. But basically, he said, listen, uh, let's sue for peace, but, you know, we're not looking for reparations here. And British diplomats kind of took that to heart when going into these peace talks. There were a number of things that obviously were requested right out of the gates that's how these talks work you request everything that you want and then you whittle them down um and you know small battles continue over the rest of 1814 but mainly both sides are trying to get this whole thing wrapped up the americans feel like they've proven their point um in terms of honor for example with the the naval victories um there isn't a war anymore so impressment is a moot point and Really, the uh, economic question, also not that big a deal anymore since the embargoes were ready to be lifted in 1807. The British are just going to offer that as part of the peace terms. Trading with France is no longer a politically dangerous act. Why are they still fighting this war? They didn't take Canada. It would have been nice to have Canada, but they didn't take it. And they probably won't now that these troops are here. Time to wrap it up. Meanwhile, people in Britain are going, we're still fighting wars. Why? Like, it's done. We finished Napoleon. There's another war going on. <laughs> I can't stress enough how much they were not paying attention to North America <laughs> in this era. The British asked for an independent native state in Ohio to be uh, reinstated. Hmm. Still, they still kind of have this eye on a, on a buffer state. It would be very useful militarily and politically to have that state there again i initially looked at that as an altruistic request also it's a better thing to do i mean they it's not as though there was no loyalty to their allies in this situation that being said i i i would not consider the relationship between them from a british point of view uh, an egalitarian one they definitely saw their their native allies as subordinate to them this request was immediately refused by the United States, and the British didn't really push the matter. 
one of the articles that actually made it into the final peace treaty just known as Article 9, basically requested the restoration of all rights and provisions granted to Native Americans uh, prior to 1811. So basically, however they went into the war, give them back all of that stuff. The U.S. said, sure, yeah, no, we'll definitely do that. And then they just sort of ignored Article 9. And the British just sort of didn't enforce Article 9. And the Ohio Territory just sort of got swallowed up after all of this. Yeah. The Americans demanded reparations for the burning of Washington, as well as the return of all lost slaves, which Britain refused to do. And in lieu of that, the Americans demanded financial compensation for all lost slaves and any seized ships, uh, which gives you an idea of which category this all falls into for them. These were eventually paid out. There was kind of a balance of reparations. There were also damages to uh, British installments that needed to be paid for. But... Yeah, I was going to say York mm-hmm. also lost. Yep. Uh, the, the major forts, Fort George, Fort Erie, yeah. were also destroyed. As far as territory goes, it was negotiated to what's known as status quo antebellum. Um, back to the way things were before the war. That's essentially what that means. Yeah, so, I didn't actually remember if any territory had changed hands, but no. None. none. Interesting. None changed hands. And I think that's part of the reason that when you look at each side and how they feel about the war, um, the answer is what we want. Because what was the Canadian objective here? And the British objective, for that matter. Don't lose parts of Canada. Basically, yes. And what was the American objective here? The, the, the primary objective. Sounded like showing their military might. Uh, as well as pushing back against the economic sanctions that were put in place by the British and the cessation of uh, aggression by right. native agents who they believed were under the control of Britain. All of which, one way or the other, happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone kind of got what they wanted. Which is why each side kind of looks at this and goes, well, yeah, we want it. Except the natives. Except the natives. And I think that's the most important takeaway here is uh, there may not have been a clear winner, but there was a clear loser. Even Britain, they just wanted the fighting to stop. What is this fighting? Stop it with the fighting, please. Also, could you not support Napoleon while you're at it? But that's now an irrelevant point. So, you know, they've protected their colonies. They've uh, punished the United States economically for uh, violating their economic sanctions, they're fine with this. This is all good. The Treaty of Ghent is signed December 24th of 1814. It's ratified by the British Parliament December 27th, and then ratified by uh, the American Congress uh, February 17th of 1815, which officially ends the war. There's a couple of final engagements that take place technically after the ending of the war, um, which the Americans are very proud to tell you that they won. Uh, and which is true. Hmm. But at that point, I mean, you know, uh, the, the the whole big picture of, of war aims and things like that really paints that story of both sides feeling like they got what they needed to get. Maybe didn't got, get uh, more than they wanted. Yeah. Maybe weren't happy with the outcome, but certainly weren't disappointed with the outcome. The total losses of this entire war, British had had about 1,200 killed. 1,200 over the course of nearly three years of fighting, about 3,700 injured, around 3,300 lost to disease, which is a thing that happens every time you... I mean, disease is, is, is 
far bigger a killer of, of soldiers in this area era than actual pitched combat right. american losses about 2300 killed about 4500 injured very very small numbers again you know the the casualties that the, the killed in in the battle of waterloo the next year will number in the tens of thousands on a day right i know that's maybe a slightly unfair one to compare to but when the, it was happening when the series of wars have been has been going on time. since 1793 more or less uh with the odd break in there it's hard to compare what happens in the war of 1812 to any of that in a way that makes you take it terribly seriously right. it's a very very small very regional conflict um how many losses to various native i have no idea no one knows that's almost worse than it being a bad number yeah in a way the fact that it's not recorded in well enough a way for us to know and and i mean there's there's extra difficulties to that the fact that the confederacy was made up of so many discrete um, political and cultural units makes recording things like that hard i don't think it necessarily forgives the entire thing though but yeah i i mean the only ones that failed to achieve their their goal here are the the natives they failed to uh secure an independent state their lands would be uh, uh settled by american settlers and and they had basically lost the ability to defend it and that's sort of the the war as, as it stands at uh, at 1815 um the british wrapped it up just in time to kind of go and deal with the uh napoleon ii right the second coming um <laughs> napoleon's revenge yeah there you go which was fine by them they, they did not want to be dealing with that while uh, napoleon is making a comeback but in general, the war, the war of 1812, I mean, the, the fact that you've heard of it pins you as someone who's grown up in North America. Yeah. It's not something that's known outside of North America, really. It's the sort of thing that if you study history in Britain, you might come across. You say the war of 1812 to someone in, in Britain, and they, they'll probably say you mean the Napoleonic Wars. <laughs> why, why, why are you locking it down to a year like that? Yeah, I don't it was, understand. it was longer than that. <laughs> The Americans see it as, you know, as having successfully declared war and achieved their aims. Today, the Canadians see it as this this quiet moment of, of national pride where we, we managed to stand up to the big bad Americans who were coming for us. And look at us. We're still not American. It's a little weird that way. Yeah. This is what I'm talking about when, when we very first opened up with this this the sense I had through the entire thing of, of, of Rashomon, of this idea of, of all of these people telling this story in a slightly different way because they have something to gain out of telling it differently. Right. And the truth being somewhere in the middle and, you know, just, just by, by virtue of being someone who's, who's grown up in Canada, I, I'm, I'm already going to be inclined towards reading certain things certain ways, right? I'm, I'm not in any way immune to that, but you know, you look at, you look at uh, national polls about, who won North America? Who won the War of eighteen twelve uh, between Can Canadians versus Americans? And you know, it's it's pretty clear which side of the border you it's, came from yeah. based on your answer. That <laughs> um, I, I saw one poll that basically said it, it, it was a ranking of things that uh, definitively identify you as Canadian. And belief that the Canadians or the British won the War of 1812 ranked second, I believe, in that poll of, <laughs> of things that would identify you as as a Canadian citizen. Oh man. It's something that we kind of clutch onto a little bit. Yeah. And for such a small and 
inconsequential at the end of the day conflict. It's it's interesting how large it looms in our national consciousness. So there's its presence in our education. Mm-hmm. There's also the forts, which if you live in the area, you probably went there as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh and you know, you've learned about life there and Oh yeah, those settler villages are the best. Oh, yeah. I love it. So yeah, I think it just ends up being this weird part of of our lives, at least. Yeah, I, I mean, it is it is definitely a, a very specifically regional part of of uh, of our history. Um, there are, I, I mean, we we mentioned I don't know eight or ten different sites that you and I could probably drive to within about three hours, no problem. Yeah, it's it's pretty pretty local. It's pretty local, yeah. um, and I think. This this is this is wild speculation on my part. So just just take this with a grain of salt. In terms of like building a national identity, the United States has a very clear founding myth. And say what you will about popular beliefs about the revolution versus what actually happened in it. You know, you've got a pretty clear starting point, right? Like you've got a fairly clear uh, narrative. The Canadian narrative is is much different. In that we, um, you know, it's it's more complicated than this, but we essentially asked if we could please be our own country, and the Queen said yes. Again, again, far more complicated than that, and <laughs> yeah. I, I feel bad for participating in the sort of trivialization of our uh, our history, as we just showed over this past uh, two parts. Um, it, it is interesting stuff. It's not it's not uninteresting. Sure, but compared to a uh, specifically a military conflict. Mm-hmm for that purpose yes this idea of of being you know forged in fire that the that the american revolution gives we don't have that and so i think in a lot of ways popular canadian culture has turned to the war of 1812 to be that founding conflict right yeah because we don't really have another one no that's fair I, I could see that. The the only other one that I can point to is the is the Seven Years' War in which the the British defeated the French, and um, that's a that's a very problematic founding myth for a, a significant percentage of our population. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> oh dear. So I I think I think that's a big part of why it looms so large in Canadian consciousness, and maybe unfairly so. I. I I, I remember seeking out more information about the War of 1812 when I was much younger because it feels like this big thing uh, when you go through school and when you uh, visit the historical sites and all of this. And it feels very, very major. And, and you know, it's, it's in, in, in the grand scheme of things, it's really not. Yeah. Um, but it's become so important in our national consciousness that it still warrants examination, I think. And um, for, for specifically that reason, why would we take such a small thing and blow it up? There are other things that we could talk about as, as consequences of the War of 1812. We could talk about the fact that Canada didn't really bother having its own military really until the 20th century as a consequence of this, believing basically that... Um, well, support from the British military is by far enough. I mean, the most dangerous uh, uh, threat to us in general, I, I mean, throughout our entire history, has been invasion from the United States, uh, at least to our our, our sovereignty, like right. the, the, our actual uh, sovereign soil. Well, the, the British saved us from it once, but they can do it again. Um, and it's not really until, as I said, basically the 20th century that, that we start drifting away from that and building our own military. Um, there are things that you could point to, such as uh, um, 
the the sort of warming of uh, U.S. British relations because you know partially because they don't want to deal with this whole hassle again, but also partially because they realized one of the best ways to protect Canada is to just have a good relationship with the United States, which is much easier to do diplomatically and economically than it is to do uh, militarily. Right. Why bother fortifying all of these points when we can just be friends? What else? What did I not talk about? The building of the Rideau Canal, I suppose. Oh. That's a big one. Um, the Rideau Canal stretches from basically from Montreal, which is at the you know very end of the Ottawa River. It stretches from the Ottawa River uh, down to Kingston. Kingston was a much more important city than York at this point in time. It was it was a, one of the most populated places in uh, Upper Canada. It just had the benefit of being uh, protected by Lake Ontario. Right. Um, it's at the far east end of, of Lake Ontario. So the Rideau Canal, which is the longest man-made canal, I believe, in North America, if the Rideau Canal was not in place... Um, access to Kingston would be vulnerable down the, the St. Lawrence because that stretch of the St. Lawrence's actually border between us and Canada. Um, and if the, the Americans managed to take control of the St. Lawrence, they'd be able to cut off supplies to Kingston specifically, as well as the rest of the great lakes in the event of such a takeover, the Riedel canal would allow the movement of supplies, troops, uh, even ships, um, from Montreal, up the Ottawa River, down the Rideau Canal to Kingston, hmm. and potentially even access the Great Lakes through the canal, as well as just moving supplies to Kingston. So it is originally a, a military, um, uh, or there's originally a military purpose behind the Rideau Canal. Did not know that. Yeah, and now it's mainly used for the most Canadian thing of clearing the canal and skating on it in the winter. And I have done that several times. I think we may have done that the first week we ever met. Yep, I think so. Which is kind of interesting. So, um, getting into some personal history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Ottawa's beautiful and 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 deadly in the winter. It's, <laughs> it's a, uh, an incredible place, but oh my goodness, the cold in that valley. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they 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 the canals freeze, frozen over. They clear a big long stretch of it, and you can skate up and down it, and realize that maybe not having skated in several years and strapping on a pair of skates and trying to skate the entire canal is not the best idea yep i just uh, just hypothetically i speaking, definitely heard nothing, myself nothing personal <laughs> a, a couple of times <laughs> but you know you gotta get those beaver tails there are the beaver tails um which are pastries and not actual beaver tails yes just to be very clear just to be very clear we have strayed far away from the war of 1812 <laughs> my friend um what a weird little war yeah what a weird little story and and everyone just kind of yeah the 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 purposes for it just not never never quite lining up among any any particular groups um and yet still having this odd significance very strong significance very strong significance at least here in north america so yeah that's that's the war of 1812 any other uh questions or comments you had about the topic cool no i think that about covers it Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. It was a pleasure having you here. Thanks for having me, as always. The War of 1812 wasn't important for the normal reasons a war might be important. It didn't feature conquest or regime change or even reparations of any sort. There have been hundreds of wars throughout history that were, in one way or another, just like this one. 
But what makes the War of 1812 important is that two countries have decided to make it important, a part of their national stories. This makes it matter, but it also makes it harder to navigate as the meaning behind the event begins to take on more significance than the facts. Nothing concrete might have changed as a result of this war, but two young nations began to define themselves. Next time on HI101, I don't quite have a title nailed down for you guys yet, but we'll be talking about South Africa and its colonial period. That show will be up on March 1st. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.